If you have your Bibles, won't you please open up to Nehemiah, chapter 12, verse 27. Nehemiah, chapter 12, verse 27. Yes, Lord, that's the prayer of our hearts this morning, is that, God, we want to have ears to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. Father, clever words aren't going to get us very far. Lord, uh, earthly wisdom. But God, your very word given to us by your Spirit, it's life to us, Lord. It changes us on the inside. gives us perspective on how we're supposed to live for you in this age until you come again. So this morning, as we recognize this, God, we're praying that, Lord, you would just have a grace upon us this morning. Upon myself, Lord, I ask that every word that I say would be from you and that you'd keep me from saying what's not of you, Lord. And that, Lord, what you are saying to us would be clear this morning, not only to our minds but to our hearts, Lord, that uh, this morning we would be a people that would have a fresh heart towards you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Our journey through Nehemiah chapter 12 brings us finally at verse 27, the dedication of the walls, which is a bit odd if you had to ask me. The walls were finished in chapter chapter 6. Why on earth did Israel take so long to dedicate these walls, this great work of God? I mean, surely if you had finished the walls on the same day as the last bricks being laid or maybe the next morning, you would just be like, this is awesome. We're going to dedicate it to God. It doesn't happen. Nehemiah chapter 7 happens. No dedication. Just people being stationed on the wall. Nehemiah chapter 8 happens. And here we have God's people coming under God's word and hearing it, hungering for it, and changing in response to it. Chapter 9 is confession of sin and this long recalling of how God has dealt with them as a nation. And chapter 10 is a fresh oath, a fresh covenant, a fresh coming to God of saying, God, we recognize that we've sinned against you. We're going to change and we're going to take an oath, a promise, a sworn covenant that we're going to put things right in our nation. And now eventually, Nehemiah chapter 12, they're ready to dedicate the wall. Friends, this morning... We need to be aware that the dedication of ourselves is just as important to God as the dedication of what we do for Him. In other words, the walls weren't ready to be dedicated until God's people were dedicated to Him. God is not so much interested in us fulfilling our calling as much as our character because we can do stuff for Him, but if our character doesn't line up with what we have done with Him, it discredits the whole thing. What good is having a Jerusalem with walls that are as high and as beautiful as they were back in the day and having a living temple, but the people didn't live lives that didn't reflect the God of the, that they worshipped at all? It makes no sense. And so there might be something in this for you this morning. Perhaps you've been facing, like Nehemiah and the Israelites, some tough challenges in Nehemiah chapter 3, 4, 5, and 6. They were struggling with opposition. They had enemies. They had difficulties. And you might be praying, God... Won't you deal with my enemies this morning? You might be going, God, there is this person who is harassing me, who is causing me such trouble, who is causing me such difficulties. Perhaps it's a colleague, perhaps it's a family member, perhaps it's a friend. And you are just battling before God God, saying, God, I need you to deal with this person. But in this process, you're finding that God's dealing with you. In actual fact, what turned out to be something that was so wrong and so, so difficult and so unfair towards you, and you didn't really earn it or deserve it, suddenly you find that as God is dealing, as you're praying for God to deal with your enemies and deal with the situation that's in front of you, He's dealing with you as well. You see, you are more important to God than what you can do for Him. He is more interested in your heart than your hands. Because if the heart is not right, the hands will just follow the heart. But this morning, we're going to see God is determined not just 
to get us to do great things for him, but to change us as people for him. And uh, this morning, I want to look at how does God motivate us to be holy. When I say holy, you'll hear me interchange with a number of words this morning. This dedication of the wall, that word dedication is another word for holiness. It's to set something apart for the exclusive pleasure and purpose of God. That's what holiness is. And we're going to see how these Levites this morning and under the leadership of Nehemiah and Ezra, they set these walls apart, but not only the walls themselves as well, for God's pleasure and for his glory. So let's read in verse 27 together. I'm going to uh, jump a bit, so just stick with me. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgiving, and with singing, with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the district surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Netophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the region of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And here it is in verse 30. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. Then what happens is, I'll just quickly talk you through verse 30, from verse 31, is they gather these Levites together, and uh, they split them up into two giant choirs. And these choirs were called to sing songs to God in thanksgiving. They were to walk around. One went to the south of the wall, and they walked under the leadership of Ezra, and they just sang and gave glory and honor and celebrated what God had done in the finishing of this wall. It was a fantastic moment. The other choir under Nehemiah went north up along the wall, and they were singing and giving thanks, thanks and praise to God for what he had done for them. And eventually, the two choirs met in the temple. And here, it talks about in verse 33, they offered, not just little, great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. The women and children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. Verse 44. Notice what happened straight after this joy. Is on that day, the same day, men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests. And for the Levites, according to the fields of the towns, for Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. In verse 47, in all Israel, in the days of Zerubbabel, in the days of Nehemiah, gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers. And they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. I don't know about you this morning, but uh, did you switch off maybe when I said God wants to make us a holy people? It's not something we hear about very often from the pulpit these days. In fact, in the church, holiness was a massive deal for the 16th century Puritans, even for the Catholics, monasticism was a whole move to live a holy life for God. Holiness has uh, been on the minds of Christians for many, many years. And for us in the 21st century, we seem to have lost little bits of this idea that God is calling us to be a holy people to himself. You see, I think many of us, and myself included, we've grown up in a culture where we tend to see God like everything else in life, like a vending machine. You have a look at your menu and you see what you want. You type it in. You try and pay as little as possible. This is me I'm talking about. I'm not just in the culture in general. This is all of us, so don't feel. But we put in our little order, and what happens? Out pops the packet of chips we want. Out pops what we want. We take it out. We enjoy it. And we only come back to God, the vending machine, when we need him. 
So in actual fact, God is a bit like a, a vending machine that's in this room that's our personal security. If we maybe need him for today, maybe experiencing a bit of trouble at work, we go to him and uh, type in a packet of peace. Or maybe we want some revenge on our, our family members. We type in a packet of revenge. Or maybe they, we just decide how God is to meet our needs. Friends, that is what consumerism is. And this has a deep impact upon the way we see God. We don't see God wanting something from us. We see God as what we can get from Him. And that's quite, that's quite a game changer. And friends, what God is determined to do is to bring us to this place of being set apart for Him, devoted to Him, holy for Him. And this picture of the Levites taking this blood mixed with water in Nehemiah chapter 12 verse 30 and cleansing themselves and cleansing the people and cleansing the, the walls and the gates is a sign of being set apart for God. Do you know that when you cross the line of faith in Jesus, he sprinkled you with his blood? Do you know that the second you came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he set you apart for himself? In Romans chapter 3, verse 23 to 25, it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But here it is, and are justified, declared not guilty by his grace as a gift. How? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. In other words, the way we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and have forgiveness of sin is the moment we see the cross. The moment we look upon the cross and there we see the blood of Christ being shed for us and our sin in that moment of putting our faith in the blood of Christ. The anger of God against our sin, which is good and proper, Sin is anti-God, sin is against God, sin is wicked, sin is destructive, sin is undoing everything God has initially intended for the planet. In that moment, we receive propitiation, which means God is no longer angry with us. You know, right now, if you are a believer in Jesus, God is not angry with you. That in the blood of Christ, he sprinkled you with the blood of Jesus, and in that second, you receiving it by faith, God made you holy. He set apart everything you are for him, for his pleasure. And in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, it says, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. God has bought you with the blood of Jesus. He has sprinkled you with the blood of Jesus. Your sins are forgiven, but attached to that forgiveness of sin, you belong to him. You've been set apart for him. And so, the sixth point I want to put under God is determined to set apart a holy people for himself is he has, he has made us holy in our position before him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 to 31, it says, And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of the Father's purpose, he has placed us by faith in this blood, into his Son. And notice what Jesus becomes for us. He becomes for us the wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What happens to us when we come to faith in Jesus, we die with him. That death on the cross, putting our faith in that blood, in that second that we do that, we have died with Christ so that by the power of the Spirit, we might receive newness of life. And as Jesus was risen from the dead three days later, we receive a brand new life. The Bible talks of us being born again. But it's not born again in the same way that you were before Jesus. God literally puts you into his Son. That means everything that Jesus is everything that Jesus did becomes yours. Wow. How does that play out in the way that I live my life as a Christian? It means this. If you've come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father swears he will only deal with you based on Christ's track record, not our own. I'll say it again. 
because it's so revolutionary. God swears the moment we come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that he is never, ever, ever, objectively, our foundation is never, ever, ever in our relationship with him based on our track record. He only deals with us based on Christ's. Friends, that means every bit of pleasure Jesus brought to the Father, you bring to the Father in him. Every ounce of Jesus' obedience, his holiness set apart for God, his perfect life becomes yours in him. And that perfect life becomes God the Father's means of dealing with you. And that means when we are born again, we are put into a kingdom of grace. In other words, we get what we don't deserve. We get Jesus in his fullness. And all of the faith, the perfect faith of Christ, all of his perfect work, his perfect obedience, God gives to us. And it means practically this. We never, ever, ever approach God, ever, in ourselves. It does not matter where you are today, It does not matter how you feel. It does not matter on your personal performance before God. You are received into the presence of the Father because he sits upon the throne of grace. And the reason why it's a throne of grace is because you're coming in who Christ is for you. You are in him. And this morning, the recovery of sin is not feeling so bad that you're weeping. It's not feeling so bad that you're so separated from God because of your sin. God refuses to change to you as a Christian because he has given you the permanent, radiant glory of Christ. Wow. In God's eyes this morning, if you have come to faith in Christ, you are holy before him because he is dealing with you based on Christ's track record, not your own. And that is why God can be unchanging towards us. That is why Stacy can say with absolute boldness in front of you this morning, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. How can God be so steadfast? It is because Christ is so steadfast. And because Christ is steadfast and we are in him, God will not change towards us. Wow. He makes us holy in our position. Do you know, you bring the Father great pleasure just by being in Jesus. Do you know this morning that God is not angry with you in Christ? Even if we sin, we sin against God as a Father. We have this relationship with Him objectively in Jesus where all of who Christ is speaks for us. But we are in a bit of a trouble, a bit of a problem. Because although we are holy in our position, anybody here who came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, did you automatically just become a holy person? Did suddenly you, just beautiful words come streaming out of your mouth every single day? You only think happy thoughts and rainbows and butterflies, and you only think about heaven. Do you, your heart only ever thinks love towards everybody. I'm telling you now, that is far from the case. We don't always feel holy, do we? That's why we need the objective position in Christ to deal with the Father. Because man, in our behavior, we are not holy, even though we are holy in our position. We need to understand that. Although God has made us a new person inside of us, we're still in the same mind. Still have the same mind, we're in the same body. And I guarantee you, particularly if you have children, like myself, as I have discovered, the love of God does not naturally flow from you. We have to come in and be aligned to who we are in Christ so that as we have been made holy in Him, we are becoming holy. Have you ever listened to or read Hebrews 10.10? 10? It's the most confusing verse, if this is not clear. And by that, and by that, I think I've written this down wrong. <laughs> We, there we go, who have been sanctified through the offering of, no, never mind, that's the wrong verse. <laughs> thank you. That's it, Hebrews ten fourteen. For by a single offering, thank you, Dad, he has perfected, houses, houses, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time, for all time perfected those who are being made holy 
How can that be? How can you be perfected for all time in Christ Jesus? In other words, when God sees you, he sees Christ and he loves you because he loves Christ and he can be faithful towards you because of Christ's faithfulness towards him. He sees you as perfect yet, oh wait, still becoming holy. Oh, friends, this is the message for the church in the 21st century is that God has saved us for himself. And he is determined, he is determined to work out that which he has given by grace, this perfect position in Christ. He wants it to flow, to be worked out into the way we think, into the way we speak, into our hearts, into our hands, into our feet, into the, the walls and gates of our lives, our possession, into every relationship, everything in our lives. He wants it to be set apart for him. And he's determined to do it. Have you ever wondered why it says, in Philippians chapter 2 verse 12, it says, work out. Notice, not work for it. Notice, not work to keep it. Notice, not work to prove it. No, it says, now that you have it, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why on earth would Paul use that word that we have to take this salvation that we have received and take this working of it out into the every, remember I said last week, the little components of our life, the body for Paul was practically every aspect of our lives. Why do we need to do that with fear and trembling? This is it. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is at work in us to make us holy. And if we don't take this salvation seriously, that actually God is wanting to make us holy, not only in our position, but in our behavior, we will be found to be resisting God. The reason why it says we need to work out the salvation with fear and trembling, because God is there, he's willing it, he is determined, and he's going to work. He's going to practically work in our lives to bring this about. Friends, God can be so gentle with us for a long time. But eventually, he will begin to deal with us if we don't take this aspect of being holy seriously. He will will it, and he will work it. And this morning, you might be saying, wow, this is a bit, uh, possibly a bit heavy, Matt. Friends, this morning, it's heaviness to resist God. It's heaviness this morning to be fighting Him every single time and moment of the day. It is a blessing, like we said last week, to yield to the will of God. We will discover that if we yield to the will of God in this, in other words, we will take seriously to flow with His work in us to make us holy. It will, enter, it will lead us into such blessing. Romans 12 verse 2 will come through for us. We will test, we will prove that His will is not only good. We thought it was terrible that we had to give up that, or we had to do this, or we had to respond to God in obedience to that. We thought it was terrible. It turns out to be good. It turns out to be acceptable. And it turns out to be perfect. Because you see, for the Christian to deny God his life, his hands, his, that means every component of his life, for the Christian to deny God that, it's miserable, it is terrible, it is a feeling of heavy burden. It is miserable to keep fighting God in this area. I say all of this to say we need to yield to the Lord. It leads to tremendous blessing. And now I'm going to uh, just quickly unpack Nehemiah 12 on that platform of seeing how these Jews were motivated to live a life for God. You see, holiness is not automatic. We've already said it. When we came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we didn't all of a sudden go, man, I'm starting to just be perfect in love, perfect in patience, perfect in peace. No, no, no. We wrap diamonds. God has to do a bit of work in us to get us looking like Jesus. So in other words, if holiness is not automatic in Scripture, what motivates us to live a life that's set apart or dedicated for Him? 
Have you ever thought about that? If you are perfect in your position in Christ, well then, what motivates us to live a holy life? Well, there's a case study here, Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27 to 47, that comes through. Is there are two means of God motivating his people to live a life dedicated to him. The one failed miserably. The other had astonishing success. Didn't you maybe notice, you didn't pick it up, it's okay. I've been sitting with this the whole week, so I have a bit more of time to look at the exact words. But in Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 44, don't you think it's interesting that it's only at this point that the Jews eventually gave their tithes to the temple? In Nehemiah chapter 10, you heard Joe preach it. They swore to God. They took an oath. They said, God, we will enter into your curse if we don't give these tithes to the temple. Nehemiah chapter 10. But Nehemiah chapter 12, they still haven't done it. You might be going, well, geez, that's interesting. They made an oath. They made an oath before God. They swore. They said, we're going to do this. They bent their will to be holy before God and give what the, the law of Moses commanded. But Nehemiah chapter 12, they still hadn't done it. What produced this willingness to live a life dedicated to God was based in this day of celebration and thanksgiving for His mercy. And I want, to look at, want us to look today at this difference between how law motivates us versus grace. You see, holiness, if we had to start about thinking about holiness, we tend to think immediately of what we must give up. <laughs> I'm sure that's what you thought. Oh, I've got to give up smoking. I've got to give up drinking. I've got to give up those. We immediately go to the external things. The very first thing we think of is holiness. is like, I don't know about you, depending on your church background, it's long rockies or urbala, oh, I'm thinking Afrikaans, urbala, earrings, hats. You think about um, no movies, no dancing. Maybe that's your background. That was my parents' background. I'm so grateful they got uh, freed from that kind of thinking as a son. <laughs> or maybe if you like a, you're a very young Christian, you haven't really ever thought about it. You've never thought about holiness. Man, I believe Jesus has saved me and life's great. You've just upset me this morning about talking about giving my life to God. Well, friends, when we think about holiness, we don't start with the externals first. Holiness is a matter of the heart. Isn't it amazing in Psalm 51 when David has just slept, well, not a year later, Nathan comes and tells him, David, you slept with Bathsheba. You're an adulterer. And then you plotted the murder of, his, of her husband. It was terrible. Here's the man after God's own heart committing sexual immorality with Bathsheba. And what does David pray in Psalm 51? He says, Creating me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You see, God knows when he starts to talk about holiness, he's not gunning so much for our hands, he's gunning for our hearts. Because Jesus taught, our heart is where our treasure lies. And see, the problem with holiness that we have is, we think of holiness as a direct attack on the will. Now just stay with me for a moment. We tend to think of holiness as a bending, a determination of making sure we are going to do what we said to God. How many of us have done that? How many of us have done that? We've made an oath. I'm never going to be irritated with my wife ever again. How many, okay, don't put your hands up, husbands. Never mind. They'll, they'll accuse you right here. They'll, they'll start saying, you liar. How many of you have said, I'm never going to go to that, do that thing again. I'm never going to go to that person. I'm never going to touch that thing again. My friend, this next day, the very next, maybe the next hour, you're doing it. You see, we, we try so hard. We try and bend our will by saying, God, I take an oath. God, I take a covenant. I'm never going to do that again. Oh, man, we're going to be doing it next week. To my shame, I'll tell you what happened to me the other day. Matthew trying to be super efficient, doing phone calls while driving. I think to myself, oh, I'll just uh, put my phone on. Um, you know, you hold it in your hand. It's not by your ear. You've got it on the steering wheel, but you've got it on speakerphone. 
And lo and behold, a traffic cop pulls me over. And who's behind the traffic cop? One of the ridges. One of my congregants see their pastor getting pulled over to the side of the road. Officer, you know, you're trying to be so nice because in South Africa, we get away with murder. I say, officer, I'm so sorry. These are my words to my shame, Lord Jesus. I will never do that again. I will never, ever answer my phone in the car again. One week later, I was doing it. And I had to go before God and say, oh, Lord, I can't believe I'm so sorry. Friends, this is how we tend to think about holiness, is we try and bend our will, but we find that our will is rebellious. We find that it won't do what it wants us to do. And, and look at this. That's the, that's the picture of the Mosaic Law. Do you know that in the Mosaic Law, there were 613 commands? Hard enough following 10, right? 613. And each of these came with a punishment. When you entered into a covenant, you accepted the curse of disobedience as well as the blessing. In other words, it was on the basis of your performance, you either entered into blessing or into curse. And I tell you, those, those, those punishments were harsh. Do you know, there's no young guys here, maybe there's some kids, but you know if you were cheeky to your parents, they could execute you. Some of you are like, yes, bring that back. Bring it back right now. I want it. Do you know that if you walk too far on the Sabbath, you'll be executed? If you ate the wrong kind of meat, you'll be executed. If you married a foreigner, which in the mind of an Israelite was an interfaith marriage, you were executed. You see, all that the law could do was put the most intense pressure on the will to try and bend it to get the Jews to do what God wanted. But it failed. And the standard's too low. Friends, if you think the law is what's going to get you loving God and living a godly life, you're going to be bitterly disappointed. The law couldn't even get a man to be faithful to one wife. It allowed polygamy. The law couldn't maintain the sanctity of marriage. Man, if the woman cooked badly, if the woman did something, the, the man just went out and said, I divorce you, I divorce you, I divorce you. I had a conversation with a Jewish lady here in the 21st century at the pharmacy. She was terrified of her husband divorcing her. Because at any moment, if she upset him, he had all the rights to cast her aside. The law never even told you to pray. Not, there is not a single place in the Mosaic law that tells you to pray anywhere. It permitted slavery. Is that the standard of Christ? No. In actual fact, Galatians goes on and on to say the law was added on account of sin for a period of time. That's all it can do. You can only bend your will to God under the fierce Harsh constraints of the law for a period of time until Christ came. The law was done away with when he came. The model has always been salvation by faith in Abraham. Abraham was there way before the law. And the model is God comes to Abraham. Abraham believes God's word. And on that faith, he's made righteous. There are people here this morning that are living under law. I step in and out of it all the time. But you know, for me, the first two-thirds of my Christian walk, I was pretty miserable. Because I would make these oaths to myself saying, I will not do that. I will not do that. I am determined not to do that. And I'd put this pressure on myself. But what I found happening was I couldn't get my heart to follow. I couldn't keep myself obedience to God. I broke it. And the more I tried to live under these constraints and fears and punishments, the more I couldn't do it. And you know what the end result of the law is? It's Romans 7 where Paul says, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me? And you may be saying, well, that was Paul, maybe before the law. I want to say, Paul wrote an entire letter, Galatians, to Christians who were falling back into that way of thinking. The mark of the law is this. You'll know it. Is if your overriding emotion before the Lord is guilt. 
you can never quite get your performance up to a standard where you're at peace with God. Second thing, it's resentment. Because you feel God is asking you to live like this, but you're trying to bend your will so hard to meet it that actually you feel it's unfair. You feel that this Christian life is so burdensome that who would ever want to be saved? When we talk about it being a witness, you don't want anyone to enter into it because you feel that this Christian life, it is so burdensome. Because God is asking you to live there and you can't get there. And the subsequent result is, it's depression. It will lead to you dropping an attempt to live for Jesus. Friends, that way of thinking where we attack the will directly gets us nowhere. These Jews in Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27, only started to rapidly, on the same day, what took them hundreds of years to disobey in the Mosaic law, took them one day to be motivated to do, and that was encountering God's mercy. I want to speak about how does God win our hearts through mercy. You see, holiness begins in the Christian by seeing what God has done for us before we decide to do something for God. So you picked it up last week in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of what? In view of God's mercy. That's the, that's the foundation of us coming to God. In view of God's mercy, offer up your bodies as a living sacrifice, what? Holy and acceptable to God. You see, what these Jews were doing with, was they were focusing first on what God had done for them. Imagine if you were a Jew in this moment. I just want you to think about this for a moment. Here you are, you set aside this day to walk around the walls and head off to the temple where just 50, a couple, a couple of days before, maybe three months before, they were broken down and derelict. Imagine you were the Jew walking around the wall of Jerusalem, thanking and praising and singing offerings to God, thinking about man, what God has done for you. Friends, these people, they were lucky fishers. God was so merciful to them because they had been exiled from God's purposes and plans. They were cut off from God's presence in Jerusalem and God's promise in Jerusalem. They were in Babylon under a pagan ruler, under a pagan place, and they had virtually no hope. And then God sovereignly steps in and he comes under King Cyrus in Ezra chapter one and he makes a way not only for them to return, but gives them cash to rebuild the temple. God even provides the resources for them to do it. And then he sees that the temple gets rebuilt, and with his help, the walls get rebuilt. If you were a Jew walking around the temple and walking around Jerusalem's wall, you would have pinched yourself and said, can you believe it, guys? This is what God has done for us. Man, just the other day, we were a reproach to the nations. We had no hope of coming back to God. And in his mercy, here we are with the city restored, the sacrifices restored, the covenant renewed, we are back in the sweet spot of God's purpose in our lives by sheer mercy. And they went brick by brick. They walked the full length of God's mercy towards them. And every brick had a story. There in the wall was a charred, burnt, broken brick that had been re-put. God had worked the bad stuff for the good. He'd worked all things for the good of those who loved him and were called according to his purpose. They were marveling at the mercy of God. And friends, when you begin to marvel at the mercy of God, it melts your heart. Because you begin to see what the Lord has done for you. And when you begin to see what he's done, oh man, there is this overflow of thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. And this melting of our hearts or their hearts to God, it was so motivating. 
You see, when God encounters your life with mercy, he becomes the only person you want to please. I want to unpack this a bit <laughs> and just spend our last moments meditating on this. Do you know, church, that we were born exiled from God? Do you know that this very state that the Israelites were in of being cut off from God's presence and cut off from God's purposes, you and I were born that way. Ephesians 2 says, while we were dead, dead in our transgressions, Christ died for us. And so don't look at the story with 21st century eyes, hundreds and hundreds of years ago saying, that's nice. Yeah, God's people celebrating God's goodness then, rebuilding their walls, that's nice. No, no, no. What they were doing there is exactly what has happened to us in Christ. We were born without any hope under a pagan ruler called Satan, under his laws and his ways of sin. And God the Father, like King Cyrus, sent us a rescuer, Christ. And in his great mercy, he sent Jesus, his one and only son, into this world of darkness and sin. And he did what we could not do. He died, he lived a life we could not live perfectly, fulfilling the law. And then he died a death that we were meant to die perfectly fulfilling the law. Man, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. What Jesus did for us is what God did for those Jerusalem knights, those, those Jews. He rescued us from exile by giving us Jesus, his son. He provided the resources, which are Christ. He provided the life, which was Christ. He provided Christ's regulations being met perfectly in the law in Christ. He provided his death so that we who look upon Jesus can marvel at the mercy of God. Friends, the second you begin to see what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, it changes you. It begins to melt the heart that refuses to yield. And this work of the Spirit in Ezekiel is called this removing of a heart of stone and giving of a heart of flesh. And what God does in this mercy to us is He doesn't give us a system. You might be surprised at that this morning. You weren't saved into a system. You were saved by a person. And this morning, the mercy of God gives us a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so when the law was there, you didn't really matter if you broke the law unless you got caught. I didn't matter if I really offended that policeman, right? All I wanted was, give me that fine, that's fine, I'll pay it, and then I'll get on doing with what I want to do. Man, if, if the consequences aren't too bad, we're not too phased. But oh, if you sin against your wife, it's a different story. When you grieve your father, it's a different story. You know it. Because your heart's connected to him. And this morning, I want to say what God has done for us by his mercy is he's given us a father, not a judge. And how many of us are parents here, you know, even when your little boy or girl is being naughty, you deal with them, you discipline them. But the relationship is firm. It's firm. You get them to do what you want. But their position before you doesn't change. And for David, David, the thing that concerned him about sinning against God was not some sort of... Uh, Legal requirement that wasn't met in his life. He said, "What straight off, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. But then he says, cast me not from your presence. Do not remove your Holy Spirit from me. For against you alone, O God, have I sinned. That's a person who's been touched by grace. They know that they are sinning against a person, not a system. That they are grieving the heart of the Father. And that the Father is grieved with what they're doing. And that they're saying sorry not that they can be in again in the family. Is that they can have peace with the Father as a son and daughter. Friends, that's grace. The that keeps you in the love of God is knowing the mercy of God to you. That you don't keep this thing. You don't prop up your salvation. God has propped it up in Christ. And in the family of God, you are secure. 
And when you see that, the love of God constrains us, Paul says. The love of God moves us in a way that law never can. I want to say, do you know this relationship with Jesus? Is Christianity a set of things you do, things you attend, things that you either tick or don't tick? Or is there a living understanding that we live in this relationship with the God who speaks to us? And that was, that was what was happening for David. He knew he didn't want to lose that intimacy with God because he was sinning against a person, not a system. And friends, for us, if you want to live a holy life and we want to live a holy life, we need to know. We have to drop this direct attack on our wills and we have to let our hearts be moved by the mercy of God because it's only love that's going to constrain us to obey the Father. There are things we have to do. There are things we have to change, but it's only going to happen out of relationship with the Father where we realize that we sin against a person and that changes the game. And this, this person deals with us in love. Even in love, he disciplines us. Even in love, he draws back. Even the prodigal son was still the son, and the father still the father. And he can deal with us like he did with that prodigal son. We're sitting in the pigsty. We're sitting there going, God, my life is over. Maybe that's what it's like. We're sitting in the pigsty of our sin. We're sitting in the pigsty of our failure to maintain some sort of external structure we're trying to put in ourselves to live for God. No, no, my friends. We run back to the Father. And what brings us back to the Father is His mercy. There's the Son. He's wanting to make His little speech before God, saying, oh, I mean, before the Father. Father, I'll come back to you as a servant. He wants to earn His way back. God won't, the Father won't even do that. Before He can finish His speech, He runs to the Son. He grabs the Son. He closes the Son. He welcomes the Son into His home. That's what it's like for a Christian. God's mercy finds us. God's mercy wins us. God's mercy gets our hearts. The criticism of Israel in Isaiah was, these people's lips praise me, but their heart is far from me. Friends, this morning, we need to gaze afresh at the mercy of God. And I want to close and say, the problem that you and I have is that we are so forgetful. The greatest threat to us finishing this race well, church, is our own short-term memory loss. It's when we're under pressure of temptation, when we're so disappointed with ourselves and our performance, when we're so, we're so disillusioned about things in us that aren't getting us to glory the way we'd like us to Friends, it's God's mercy that draws us back. And this morning, I want to challenge us to go, when last have you just sat and marveled at the mercy of God? You see, Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27 might never have happened. These guys could have gone on with their daily life. Life's busy. They could have just carried on. They've built the wall, tossed, done, tick. Here we go. What do they do? They dedicated a day, a moment, brick by brick, memory by memory, to behold God's goodness and thank Him for it. When last have you done it? If we don't do that daily, we're in trouble. Don't you think it's interesting that Stacy, which was I didn't know about my closing verse, is Lamentations chapter 3. 19 verse 24. Don't you think it's interesting? <laughs> she quoted this verse. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. But what are they? They are new every morning. Why is that? Why are they new every morning? Because God wants to minister His mercy daily to us. He wants us to come day by day into the refreshing revelation of His mercy. And the only way we do that is through this determination 
of Romans chapter 12, verse 1 to 2, is to keep them firmly in our sight. Therefore, in view of God's mercy, that's first. We see what God has done for us first. That melts us. That motivates us. That leads us to rejoicing. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Like one preacher says, the misery of the devil is our weakness. <laughs> the joy of the Lord is our strength. You won't get that by attacking your will. Law does not win our hearts. Relationship does. And you will discover, you will discover what Nehemiah chapter 12 did. Is on that day, you will have the strength. If we do this, on the day we do this, we will have the strength of those Jews in Nehemiah chapter 12, where they, which took them years to do under the law and they never did it, they so willingly gave what God was asking they so willingly gave it. And this will be our experience. Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 43. They offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. Leave that law. Pick up again. doesn't matter where you've fallen right now. Christ hasn't changed to you. You're in him. The joy of the Lord is your strength. The relationship with the Father is secure. He's got you. He's going to speak to you. Sure. He's going to deal with us. Sure. But he's going to do it out of mercy. He's going to do it out of steadfast love. And the good work that he started in us, he'll bring it to completion. But do you take this holiness seriously? He, he does. He wants it. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands. The two go together. He wants our position worked out in our behavior for him. Let's pray. Lord, we want to just echo what David prayed this morning. We read from Psalm 51. Creating us, O Lord, a clean heart, O God, and renew, renew a right spirit within me. And Lord, for our hearts this morning, I pray we'd have the right spirit in us, a heart melted by mercy, a heart that's birthed in a love for God through this deliberate, dedicated, daily thanksgiving and what you've done for us. I just pray this morning for those that have really struggled with what we mentioned of depression, of guilt, of despondency. This morning, Lord, I pray with the love of the Father come afresh upon their hearts. Would what you've done, Jesus, work itself out in us, every component, every aspect of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.